Good morning, and welcome to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, Dr. David Perlmutter, is a board-certified neurologist, a fellow of the American College of Nutrition, and a founding member of the American Board of Integrative and Holistic Medicine. Dr. Perlmutter is also the author of The Better Brain Book, Raise a Smarter Child by Kindergarten, and Power Up Your Brain, The Neuroscience of Enlightenment. He is recognized internationally as a leader in the field of nutritional influences in neurological disorders, and he's here today to talk about his latest book, Grain Brain, The Surprising Truth About Wheat, Carbs, and Sugar, Your Brain's Silent Killers. Welcome to Health Watch, Dr. David Perlmutter. Well, thank you, Dr. Neiman, for having me this morning. I appreciate it. So in the grain brain, you talk about how brain disorders are treated differently from other ailments, that we don't naturally connect them to bad habits, say like smoking and lung cancer or French fries and obesity. Instead, we tend to look at them as inevitable and potentially purely genetic. Why do you think that is? It's a very good question. I think it really goes back to this whole kind of notion that the brain and even the mind are somewhat distant from the human body. I mean, you bring up a very good point. Everyone talks about a heart-smart diet, uh, exercising being good for the heart, weight-bearing exercise can help stave off osteoporosis. But when it comes to recognizing the profound influence of lifestyle choices in terms of brain health and disease prevention, no one wants to go there. And yet, truth of the matter is the brain is highly sensitive to the foods that we eat, the lifestyle choices that we make, perhaps more so than any other part of the body. And it's not because there's not science there. I mean, uh, the science that relates, for example, uh, dietary choices to brain health has been available to us for decades. And it's interesting that just last week, New England Journal of Medicine published an article demonstrating a profound and direct relationship between levels of blood sugar and risk for becoming demented. And these were not in diabetics. These were in people who did not have high enough blood sugar to characterize them as being demented, but just even slight elevations of what we would consider to be normal, dramatically increasing the risk of a person becoming demented, a disease for which there is no treatment. So I am really all over this notion that things like Alzheimer's are preventable diseases and, you know, people need to get that information because it's all in our hands to make these changes. I, I saw that study too, Dr. Pohlmutter, and, and that's the first of several studies. In fact, you mentioned Alzheimer's is sometimes being referred to as type 3 diabetes. Can, can you talk a little bit more about that? Absolutely. You know, there is such a powerful relationship, again, between sugar and, and damage to the brain. Blood sugar, uh, to any significant degree, is toxic to the human brain. We've never, you know, the notion that uh, that the brain is powered, uh, likes to be powered to use glucose as a fuel, is something we've all learned in medical school, and healthcare providers continue to parrot this idea. But in reality, nothing is further from the truth. Human physiology uses uh, glucose, but in in, um, reality, Fat is a far more effective and powerful fuel for the human brain. And, you know, we've been on this very high-fat, low-carb diet. It's a brand-new recommendation. It's only been what humans have eaten for the past 2.6 million years. It's only quite recently that people have begun to power their bodies and their brains with carbohydrates and sugar. And, again, as I mentioned, that's a toxic fuel for the human brain. 
we've really got to get uh, people back to understanding that they've got to lower their carbohydrates dramatically. And, you know, the, what the study showed that we just talked about is that blood sugar is toxic, high levels of blood sugar toxic to the brain. And where does, where does it come from? It comes from our dietary choices. Your risk of becoming an Alzheimer's patient, for which there is no cure, is doubled if you happen to become a type 2 diabetic. And becoming a type 2 diabetic is, by and large, a choice. It's a lifestyle choice based upon the foods that you eat and the exercise that you either do or don't get. So the point is for these 5.4 million Americans who've been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, according to the journal Lancet Neurology, more than half of those cases didn't have to happen if people were given this information about simply eating right. And how perplexing it is that doctors don't talk about the foods that you should eat when you go to a doctor's office, and that most medical schools in the United States today don't even teach nutrition to humans. I mean, it's, it's, an, it's an interesting time. You know, what we're talking about here is, is people say, well, what you're talking about is really outside-of-the-box thinking. And I, I like to say, you know, that's not the goal here. The mission is to make the box bigger so that these things that you and I are talking about today enter into the mainstream of practice for, for healthcare and for medicine. So, Dr. Perlmutter, if, if people are listening to this show today or maybe they open the New York Times and they see the link between diabetes or elevated blood sugar and Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia, uh, and maybe they have some people in their family who've had Alzheimer's and so they're extra concerned, what are some of the tests that you would most recommend? Is it simply a fasting blood sugar, or are there other things that you think are better? And your audience needs to know we didn't script these questions. This is great stuff. Um, let, me, let me just take a step back. Uh, when you, you say people who you know, might be at risk for Alzheimer's, if you live to be age 85, your risk is 50-50. That's a flip of a coin. So, yeah, if a parent or primary relative has or been diagnosed with Alzheimer's, your risk goes up dramatically. Becoming a type 2 diabetic, your risk will double. So right off the bat, that's a large nexus of people, you know. In America right now, there are 26 million diabetics, and of those 26 million, about 7 million don't even know they have this disease, which doubles their risk for Alzheimer's. So everybody needs to know where they stand in terms of their blood sugar control today. Now, looking at your blood sugar is interesting, but your blood sugar could be in the so-called normal range, but your pancreas is working overtime to keep it at a normal range. So the pancreas secretes insulin that helps drive the blood sugar down, but the more you challenge your pancreas with higher levels of dietary carbs, the more it has to work to try to lower the blood sugar. So looking at the blood sugar doesn't tell you anything about how hard the pancreas is working. What you want to check, obviously in addition to the pan, uh, insulin, uh, blood sugar, is a fasting insulin test. Now. Really, uh, in a, the fasting state, an adult should have an insulin level that's almost undetectable. And what we see happening, first of all, is people's insulin levels go up long before the blood sugar goes up, indicating that the body's becoming what we call insulin resistant. The cells are not able to sense this insulin and deal with the blood sugar, and the pancreas is really cranking it out to try to lower the blood sugar. 
So having an elevated insulin is the harbinger for future blood sugar regulation issues. And it turns out that the risk of becoming demented is even higher just from having a higher insulin level even before the blood sugar is elevated. So that is a critical test. You know, the next time people go to their doctor's office and have a fasting blood sugar, why not say, oh, by the way, I'd also like you to write on that prescription pad that I would like to have a fasting insulin level. The other test I think is really very valuable is a test, you're obviously familiar with it, but your listeners may not be, and it's a simple test called hemoglobin A1C. To make it easy to understand, let's just say A1C. And again, for your listeners, A1C represents an average of your blood sugar measurement over about a three to four month period. The reason it's important is that even so-called normal levels of hemoglobin A1C or A1C, average blood sugar, are correlated with already having your brain's memory center start to shrink. So that when your doctor says, oh, an A1C of 5.6, 5.8, 6.0 is okay, the bottom line is according to the American Academy of Neurology that has published this information, even at a level of 5.6 to 5.8 and above, your brain is already shrinking, and specifically, the brain's memory center, called the hippocampus, is shrinking dramatically based upon as the three things we've now talked about, elevation of insulin, elevation of A1C, and as recently reported in the New England Journal of Medicine, elevation of your blood sugar, not even in the so-called abnormal levels. So we looked to the need for a dramatic change, a dramatic shift in what, what we consume, a much, much lower carbohydrate level, and actually increasing more of the fat content of the diet. What am I saying? Eat more fat. And that notion gives a lot of people the willies, because really over the past couple of decades, haven't we all been told that we need low-fat this and low-fat that, that fat is the killer and you know, if, if you eat fat, it's going to give you heart disease and Alzheimer's and who knows what else. And the bottom line is there is no correlation with eating good dietary fat and risk for anything. As a matter of fact, just the opposite. As published both in the Journal of the American Medical Association as well as the New England Journal of Medicine, when you compare a high-fat versus a high-carbohydrate diet, the one that is so much worse for human physiology is the carbs. So people need to eat more fat, more olive oil, more avocado, more nuts, seeds, grass-fed beef, wild, uh, free-range chicken, uh, wild fish, not farm-raised. These are the important brain-healthy foods that can absolutely have a profound role to play in preventing uh, our most feared brain issues, including Alzheimer's disease. In case you just tuned in, we're talking today with Dr. David Perlmutter about his new book, Grain Brain, The Surprising Truth About Wheat, Carbs, and Sugar, Your Brain's Silent Killers. Dr. Perlmutter, tell us what grain brain means. Well, grain brain is, uh, really focuses on two things, and it focuses on what we've talked about, the, as you mentioned in the subtitle, the powerful and toxic role that sugars and other carbohydrates play in terms of brain health brain function and lack of resistance to disease. The other keystone of grain brain is the understanding now 
that being sensitive to a protein found in wheat, barley, and rye, the protein is called gluten, can absolutely be related to a variety of neurological problems, including dementia, but also depression, uh, ADHD, neuropathy, movement disorders, and even schizophrenia. So uh, we're just beginning to understand that this toxic protein, which is ubiquitous in Western cultures in terms of our diet, is having a profound role to play in terms of damaging the brain and, and reducing brain functionality. So, you know, it's not that people all have celiac disease, which is being sensitive to gluten specifically as it relates to the small intestine. We now fully understand that gluten sensitivity can affect any part of human physiology. You know, it's not just that some tennis player went gluten-free and his game improved. Gluten sensitivity can be primarily and exclusively a brain disorder. And, you know, the purpose of Grain Brain, which is now uh, a bestseller, is that we have to raise the public awareness that this can happen. So uh, I think that, you know, people are really anxious to gain this information and, uh, and to implement what we're talking about. And it's nothing draconian. You've got, it's simply eat more good fat, cut back on the carbs, and recognize that it may be as many as everybody who is gluten-sensitive. At the very least, we know that 30% of people by laboratory uh, testing are at least sensitive to gluten by that parameter. But, you know, according to the work of Dr. Alessio Fasano at Harvard, he has identified significant changes that affect the body's uh, immune reactivity and therefore inflammation present in all humans as a result of consuming this very toxic protein. So, Dr. Perlmutter, does that mean that we've always been sensitive to gluten through the last 10,000 years of agriculture and oh, we're just before that, and we're just learning it now? Yeah, he has actually Dr. Pisano identified when the actual um, gene mutation took place uh, that has caused this sensitivity. Now, this isn't an allergy mediated sensitivity that you know you might be familiar with. It really, uh, not to be too technical, but it has to do with what gluten can do in the gut in terms of its activation of a, a protein called zonulin. And I don't mean, again, I don't mean to be too technical about this, but when gluten stimulates the production of uh, zonulin, it directly relates to the production of uh, the increased, what we call, permeability of the gut. So... Um, Really very, very important uh, information, very exciting information that uh, actually Dr. Fasano published uh, not only in Physiological Reviews, which is probably where his, um, you know, this beautiful publication took, took place, but this was actually picked up by Scientific American and, um, uh, you know, it became a, uh, a feature in the Scientific American. You know, he, he talks about how um, this... Uh, change took place in the human genome uh, after we had separated uh, from uh, lower primates um, in something called haptoglobin 2, which uh, we've now come to uh, call zonulin because of its role in the intestine. And um, he believes that um, this uh, mutated and has led to this issue with humans not being able to tolerate uh, gluten. But even if, you know, even beyond that, we do know that about 30% of humans or 
are antibody positive in terms of being gluten sensitive. And again, the take-home message that I would like to be sure gets out to your listeners today is we've got to get away from this notion that gluten sensitivity is a gut, exclusively a gut-related phenomenon. I mean, most people will go to the doctor and he or she might tell them, look, if you don't have any bowel-issued diarrhea, uh, food and, uh, difficulties, upset stomach, then you don't need to worry about being sensitive to gluten because you don't have celiac disease. That is so old school, it is so wrong thinking. Celiac disease is specifically gluten sensitivity as it relates to the small intestine. You can prove it by doing a biopsy. But gluten sensitivity is a far more widespread issue. You know, celiac disease might affect 1.8% of humanity, whereas, as I mentioned, about a third of us are likely sensitive to gluten, and it can affect the heart, the skin, the joints, and you know, for purposes of our discussion today, it can absolutely affect the brain. So when I'm treating kids with so-called ADHD, whose parents have already been given this prescription for powerful amphetamine, mind-altering drugs, they come here saying, gee, what else is there to do? I'm concerned about stunting my child's growth, him being up all night, losing his appetite, developing motor tics and vocalizations. What can we do? You know, the first thing we do is we test for gluten sensitivity, and, and right away, even before we get the test results back, that kid's going on a gluten-free diet because the peer-reviewed literature strongly correlates things like ADHD with gluten sensitivity, along with dementia and neuropathy and depression and even, as I mentioned, schizophrenia. So what's wrong with trying a little gluten-free diet before we jump on some very, very powerful and potentially brain-damaging uh, pharmaceutical interventions. It seems to make sense to me. You know, we've all been told, above all, do no harm, and, and a simple dietary change is harmless and, to me, makes perfect sense. So, Dr. Perlmutter, for, for patients that might want a test before they try the gluten-free trial, what is the one that you prefer? I know there's some controversy around what the ideal testing is for gluten well, sensitivity. Well, un until recently, and, uh, and again, in, in most doctors' offices, a blood test will be done for gluten sensitivity called anti-gliadin antibody. And the anti-gliadin antibody measures the production in the body of an antibody against one part of gluten called gliadin. Well, it turns out that there are 12 isomorphs of 12 different types of gliadin that are neglected when you test only one. And there are a variety of other uh, parts of uh, gluten sensitivity testing that are really fundamentally important, like looking at um, uh, tissue transglutaminase. I don't mean to be too technical. But I use a panel that's called Cyrex, C-Y-R-E-X, and it's the test I use is called Cyrex number three. And this is a, an evaluation of 24 different parameters in terms of gluten sensitivity. And frankly, I've used that test in uh, a couple of recent uh, peer-reviewed publications dealing with um, gluten sensitivity because it is so powerful, and it, for me, has become the gold standard. And again, this is, it is a medical test, but it's a test that any doctor can perform. It's really quite simple. It's a simple blood test. In case you just tuned in, we're talking to neurologist Dr. David Perlmutter about his new book, Grain Brain, The Surprising Truth About Wheat, Carbs, and Sugar. 
Dr. Perlmutter, for the last uh, segment of the show today, you do talk about um, some new theories about the brain. I, I know a lot of people grew up thinking that we had a limited number of neurons, that we couldn't create new ones. And, and now we're learning that there is something called neurogenesis, the ability to, to regenerate in the brain. Can, can you talk about some of the interventions that have been shown to help with brain regeneration? Well, absolutely. Um, you know, when I went to medical school, and likely uh, in your training as well, we were told that, you know, the brain has a finite number of brain cells. You grow new brain cells until you're about age 18 years. And whatever the number, magic number is, 100 billion brain cells. And then after that, it's, you're on the skids. It's a progressive decline. And I remember people would say, well, every time you drink a beer, well, that's 20,000 brain cells that you've lost, and they're never coming back. Well, about 18 years ago, the uh, medical literature began to demonstrate that rodents, the laboratory mice, uh, actually had the ability to grow new brain cells. And then it was discovered in primates. And then only recently was it discovered actually in humans that we retain the ability to grow new brain cells our entire lifetime. Whether you're 18 years old or you're 80 years old, it still happens. And it's a really kind of a cool term called neurogenesis. I just think that's, that's a neat moniker. But more importantly and more uh, focused to where you're going with that question, what your audience is wondering, okay, that happens, I can grow new brain cells, what can I do to enhance that process? And that's the million-dollar question. Because it's not as if you're going to go get some kind of stem cell therapy to make that happen. The reality is that your brain is always producing new cells. Your brain is always involved in stem cell therapy. And what is so exciting is literature is coming out now in our most well-respected journal showing us that we can actually turn on the genes that can enhance neurogenesis, enhance the growth of new brain cells in the brain's memory center, the very part of the brain that is first to go in Alzheimer's. And the keys to turning on those genes are, number one, aerobic exercise, as published again in peer-reviewed journals, explaining why it is that people who exercise actually demonstrate memory improvement here we are in a time, 2013, where there is no drug to cause that to happen. And yet just aerobic exercise, and in the studies it's been about 20 minutes, six days a week, dramatically turns on the genes that tell the brain to grow new brain cells. The other thing that does it is a very specific omega-3 that's called DHA. DHA is found in fish, fish oils, also available in uh, the pharmacy or health food stores derive from algae. And what DHA does, it also targets that same part of the genome that codes for a protein that turns on the growth of new brain cells. And you can actually measure the size of a person's memory center before exercise and then a year later after exercise and demonstrate actual increase in size of the brain's memory center, which translates, according to the research, into enhanced memory performance. So this is really over-the-top cool information because this is free. This is uh, exercise. It doesn't cost you anything. And you can't buy it. You can't buy a magic pharmaceutical to make this happen, nor is there as yet any place you can go in the world and have stem cell therapy that's going to cause the brain's memory center to expand. So what an incredible notion, you know, uh, 
targeting your gene, changing your genetic destiny by two simple things, taking some DHA and getting some aerobic exercise. And I noticed also in Grain Brain that uh, calorie restriction and, and potentially intermittent fasting can also do that as well. Exactly. And uh, I have to say, David, that uh, you know, we actually include in Grain Brain a, a 30-day program to really get these things jump-started. And in fact, it does include not eating for a day. Who knew? No big deal. I mean, fasting has been a part of the human experience for as long as we have been here. Our bodies generally tolerate fasting exceptionally well, and it's actually a very positive thing. But, you know, again, that would be something that people would want to check with their treating physician prior to engaging. I mean, certainly, you know, you don't want a patient who's on insulin to be fasting and have their blood sugars plummet. So, but fasting, by and large, for most of us, is really a very powerful tool to get things uh, on the right road. So do you have some final thoughts for our listeners today, Dr. Perlmutter, about Grain Brain and, and the latest research? I'm excited that in Grain Brain, we've pulled together the research that really validates what you and I have talked about. And, and beyond that, what is a little bit disenchanting this, this to me is that since we sent in the manuscript and then the book's been, been published, more research has come out that confirms exactly uh, what we've said. What's disenchanting about that is because, you know, as an author, you'd love to have included all these cool references like you and I just talked about. But that said, wow, I mean, we're really excited to be, to be validated. And, you know, for your listeners who want to follow the latest literature, I post on Facebook every day at David Perlmutter, MD, and I am linking to all of these great mainstream peer-reviewed studies that are coming out that are so empowering, telling people what is the science that is supportive of these ideas, that diet matters and that lifestyle truly matters, and that really we shouldn't be living our lives come what may and just hope that there's going to be some medical breakthrough, you know, to carry us through, uh, get us uh, uh, cured from these really scary kinds of degenerative problems that are so common now in, in modern Western society. And do you have a website you could share? drperlmutter.com. Well, it's great having you on Health Watch today, uh, Dr. Perlmutter. Well, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. We were talking today with Dr. David Perlmutter, the author of Grain Brain, The Surprising Truth About Wheat, Carbs, and Sugar, Your Brain's Silent Killers. You've been listening to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host. <laughs>